Hey, Joint Conversation listeners. Before we get into today's episode, I want to remind you that the mission and vision of our work is expanding. We started with the vision to educate and to make Jewish history and culture more accessible and intriguing, especially to non-academic audiences. We wanted people to see Jewish identity as pluralistic and dynamic. Our goal has always been to represent Jews as a global people whose identities evolve, adapt, and take on different forms of expressiveness. Importantly, we've always focused on stories of Jewish joy. This is where humanity lies. This is where compassion is cultivated. This mission is now being taken to new heights. Joy in Conversation is now the audio experience of Project Mosaics. And Project Mosaics is an education nonprofit dedicated to developing multimedia teaching tools to bring Jewish history, culture, art, and identity into K-12 classrooms. While Joy and Conversation is a podcast for everyone, Project Mosaics is focusing on what is taught in schools. Project Mosaics promotes humanities education that is grounded in multiculturalism and which is culturally affirming. Project Mosaics also exists to help make Jewish history and culture more central to what is taught in our schools because this history deserves to be known. So if you want to know more about this new nonprofit, Project Mosaics, visit our website at projectmosaics.org. And if you want to see this mission become a thriving and sustained reality, if you want to see more Jewish history as part of an inclusive curriculum, consider donating. Your support is vital to making this work possible. So please visit projectmosaics.org, tell a friend, tell a stranger, make a donation and continue to help us bring this vision of humanity's education into the world. Help Project Mosaics connect the pieces of Jewish history. Okay, now on with the episode. I grew up in Connecticut and on occasion would hear stories about the Jewish chicken farmers in Colchester. And I always assumed that that was a joke. How could it be that Jews would be chicken farmers? It sounded absurd. Only much later, almost by accident, did I discover the richness of the history of the Jewish farming experience. It wasn't a living part of life for you know, a kid growing up, even in relatively rural America, and because it was just so foreign to anything I knew. Very, very, very little attention was given to the history of Jewish farming. Our origin story is that of farmers of one kind or another, in Jewish history, there have been major chapters of Jewish farming life outside the land of Israel, from North America into Europe, into Africa. To really understand the Jewish experience anywhere, we have to understand that Jews were not always wealthy, white-collar folks. That's a tiny part, a tiny part of the overall Jewish experience. Welcome to Joy in Conversation, a podcast about Jewish history and culture. It's with scholars, but it's for everyone. I'm Dan, and I'll be your host. Join me and find Joy in Conversation because, well, it's a mitzvah. One of the most formative parts of my childhood was tending to a family garden. 
It wasn't just any family garden. It was storied. It was revered. The land was sacred. I'm among the fourth generation to till this soil, nurture new life in it, and cultivate crops. My grandfather, my papa, and my father both inducted me into this particular family tradition. On hot summer days, we would open the barn door and grab ancient-looking hoes with bone-dry wooden handles before walking down the stretch of grass that we lovingly referred to as the field. Once through the field, we'd get a glimpse of freshly churned dark earth, warm and fragrant after recently being plowed. From there, we planted rows of vegetables in a plot a little smaller than a football field. In my youth, the garden seemed massive. It continues to have an outsized mythical quality to it, even all these years later. When I think back to these summer days, I linger on the fact that this garden bound generations. Simple tools, long hours, aching backs, sweaty brows, and an unstated but mutually felt love for the tradition of raising tomatoes, peppers, squash, and eggplant, too plentiful to consume by our family alone. All of that was the connective tissue that brought family together. My papa was known to drive around town on his ride-on lawnmower with a trailer hitched to the back, delivering vegetables to his neighbors. Pictures of my father riding this mower with me and my sister are prized family possessions. My Nana turned our hot peppers into relish with enormous batches of this tangy and spicy condiment distributed among relatives. We'd eat this relish with a certain satisfaction, knowing that our work in the field yielded the ingredients for this family recipe. When my sister's daughter first visited the old family house, I walked with her, my mother, and my father to the garden. My parents pointed out the various plants. They inducted the fifth generation into this farming family. Later in life, I'd harvest and plant olive trees while living in Jordan. After that, I'd garden with my wife, tending to flowers and shrubs and trees with all too much zeal. I never considered that any of this extended from my Jewish heritage. My love for growing and gardening seemed more a consequence of a quiet New England upbringing than anything else. It existed in one compartment, and the ways that I expressed my Jewishness existed in a totally different compartment. I never thought of farming, let alone gardening, as having anything to do with Jewish life. So I was taken aback when I learned about an exhibit by Rutgers University called Jewish Agriculturalism in the Garden State. So much in that title alone took me by surprise. I devoured the online exhibit. Each point on the timeline, every photograph, all of the descriptions revealed a world of Jewish farming that was unknown to me. Still, I had to seek out more. It wasn't enough for me to simply explore the online exhibit. I wanted to talk to someone who could really guide me through the long history of Jewish agricultural life. So I rolled up my sleeves and unearthed stories ripe with intellectual sustenance. I spoke with Jonathan Dechelchen, who had bounties of insight to offer. Let's listen to Jonathan and get a glimpse into the long history of Jewish farming. Yalla, let's learn together. My name is Jonathan Dekilchen. I'm a professor of history at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And my research over the last 20, 25 years 
has dealt in part researching agriculture, the history of agriculture. I come at it also from a practitioner standpoint because uh, my entire adulthood has been spent on a kibbutz in Israel as an active farmer and someone who deals with agricultural machinery. Among Jonathan's scholarly pursuits is the history of Jewish agriculture. This history was previously unknown to me. So what can we learn by looking at this history? What about Jewish life does it reveal? Through the study of agriculture in the Jewish world, I discovered, first of all, that there's a really long view of lots of subjects in Jewish history that we often look at in isolated episodes. One can really see the links that bind generations. It should give us an appreciation of the long durée of Jewish history. There are so many different things tied into the practice of farming, of agriculture in the Jewish world. There's a long history of Jewish connectedness to agriculture. How does this show up in Jewish rituals and symbols? Where can we find it on display? There are connections and direct connections all the way back to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, because daily life was determined in great part by the yearly agricultural cycle. And our holidays until today are directly connected to the yearly agricultural cycle, at least in the Eastern Mediterranean. It doesn't match up that well in Kansas, but certainly in the Eastern Mediterranean, where, um, of course, Jewish biblical life, life in antiquity, was lived, it's not coincidental that apples and pomegranates feature very centrally in these holidays because it is exactly at the time where these fruits are harvested. They are symbols of renewal. They're annual fruits, symbols of renewal of the new year. And, and of course, they're featured very highly in the iconography of the Rosh Hashanah holiday and for centuries, if not millennia. And moving forward, there's our Arbor Day, which is a Tu Bishvat, which occurs in the winter as our flora begins to reawaken. And the iconography, certainly in Israel of all this, is uh, the, uh, the almond tree. And there are songs sung about it by children to this day, very popular songs. In the diaspora, it is the promise of what is yet to come. And I'd say the, the, the shining star in the agricultural cycle, certainly in Israel, is the Shavuot holiday, the holiday of weeks, the Pentecost, uh, which is seven weeks after uh, the Seders. And it marks the beginning of the wheat harvest. Quite honestly, when I was growing up in Connecticut, I really wasn't aware of that because I didn't live in a farming community. And, and that aspect, the farming aspect of the Jewish calendar or the Jewish people, I would say, was pretty unknown to me. So when I arrived as a young adult in Israel, I was really pleasantly surprised or, or even shocked that this central aspect of the holiday really is only celebrated in Israel. Jonathan mentions the long durée, the long history. So let's go back as far as we can and see how agriculture is embedded in the Hebrew Bible and then trace this story through the centuries. Let's see what role agriculture played in the beginning. Abraham, the first Jew, he's identified and his direct descendants are all identified as shepherds, which was, of course, a very popular thing to do in the Eastern Mediterranean, going all the way to Mesopotamia. They were herders of sheep and goats. 
And stories about this, the herding of sheep and goats, are pervasive throughout the five books of Moses. So that's more or less what the early Israelites were up to. Things changed pretty drastically, though, many, many hundreds of years later, with the return of the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. When Joshua returns the people of Israel, when they finally re-enter Canaan after that 40-year journey, the 12 tribes of Israel make a point to learn from the indigenous Canaanites about field farming. In order to sustain themselves, to feed themselves, they understood that they would have to then become field farmers in addition to tending flocks. That's a huge transition. And essentially, between that time and really to this day, Jews have been dealing directly with field farming and orchards and so on. That's millennia long. And over the next many hundreds of years, the Israelites, the 12 tribes, are engaged entirely in agriculture. I mean, that is simply what they do. A big change, of course, comes during the first exile from the land of Israel, the Babylonian exile, which begins in 598 BCE. And for the 50 or 60 years that the Israelites were exiled to Babylon, and most of them dealt in agriculture. And after that exile, as we know, Many of the Babylonian Jews chose to remain. They didn't go back to Palestine. Those who stayed in Babylon continued to work in agriculture. Even some of the great rabbinic sages and Judaic scholars that we know of now that remained in Babylon, they were farmers simply to make a living because there's only so much wealth you could accumulate just from scholarship at that time. However, those Jews who returned, those Israelites who returned to the land of Canaan and migrated thereafter into the ancient world, they began to drift away from direct involvement in the farm or on the farm and tended more towards what we can call a kind of precursor to transnational commerce in agricultural goods, because by now the Jewish diaspora is becoming rather widespread. And this is going to allow in the centuries that we move forward with more exiles and empires that are gonna come and go, for Jews, first of all, to be dispersed uh, all over the known world. And as a result, they become marketers, buyers and sellers of agricultural goods, both those grown by Jewish farmers in the ancient world, but also non-Jews. And at least during the time of the Roman Empire, there were Jews all over the empire, including in Egypt, that were, that were farmers and very often highly respected. Things started to go a little downhill with the fall of the Roman Empire and the rise of the Byzantine Empire, another Christian empire, where most Jews lived at the time. They were, in one way or another, living on lands controlled by the Byzantine Empire. And at that point, under Byzantine rulers, there were a number of moves made that forced Jews or encouraged them to move away from agriculture. I mean, some of them kind of archaic, but really important. For example, the Byzantines prohibited Jews from keeping slaves. And one might ask, well, what does that have to do with agriculture? Well, it has a lot to do with agriculture and antiquity because most of the farm work was done by slaves. And so if one could not keep slaves, 
then making a living by farming would become much more precarious. And Jews within the Byzantine Empire, for the most part, had to find something else to do. And this brought them to all sorts of professions, both in the trades and things that we would think of today as more white collar. And once the Byzantine Empire falls, these same lands, for the most part, come under Ottoman rule, come under Muslim rule. There's another downhill turn because the Muslims determined that anyone in their lands, and again, we're going from North Africa into Europe, anyone who was not a Muslim had to pay heavy taxes on their farm goods. So these kind of repressive measures are slowly but surely forcing Jews to move away from direct landowning and farming into other forms of employment. There are all sorts of developments, though, that keep Jews' hands in the pot, so to speak, or their feet in the pot of agriculture, both in the Ottoman Empire and even in Europe. And that could work by the leasing of land or having small plots or being in a way connected to local nobles who didn't really want to deal with the farms that they had in their possession. So would allow Jews to lease them and or operate them. Let's move from the Eastern Mediterranean world into Europe. For centuries, Jews experienced sanctuary and suffering here. Communities thrived in places like the Iberian Peninsula before being persecuted and exiled. Across the continent, Jews sought to make homes for themselves. Where was agriculture in all of this? Just how were Jews interacting with land throughout Europe over the centuries? How did the ways Jews identified and understood themselves evolve over time in a European context? And what, if anything, does this have to do with agriculture? After the Inquisitions in the Iberian Peninsula, a large numbers of Jews have begun to migrate to German lands, later on into Polish-speaking lands, modern-day Ukraine, and so on. And depending on the status of Jews and the way they are received in these various lands. You know, they're looking for more freedoms. Why are they moving out of the Iberian Peninsula? They're trying to get away from repression. So as they move eastward in search of greater freedoms, they're finding all kinds of niches where they can, in fact, make a good living at times in agriculture. So for example, in what is today Lithuania, Jews over the course of the modern period almost monopolized the lumber industry. They found this to be a place where there was a need and they were willing to deal in that particular kind of industry. Things were not always rosy for Jews in Eastern Europe and as waves of immigrants from Eastern Europe, including these lumbermen, left and went to all sorts of places in the new worlds that were opening up at that time in the late 19th, early 20th century, Jewish immigrants from Lithuania and those regions who were very familiar with the Jewish lumber industry migrate to places like South Africa, for example, and become pivotal in South Africa in the international trade in ostrich feathers, of all things, which were a high fashion item throughout Europe at that time. And now, how on earth do you get ostrich feathers? You have to have an ostrich farm, which surely is basically another form of cattle then there were most certainly a Jewish cattlemen throughout Central and Eastern Europe. Jews dealing in farming did not 
requires a precondition, emancipation. Emancipation in itself does not necessarily guarantee Jews' rights to land. Because if we move forward along the timeline, in Poland, for example, in between the two world wars, and Jews had been emancipated by that time in Poland. There were political parties, there were Jews who were being elected. Yet this relatively democratic Polish government in the 1930s takes these emancipated Jews who had been emancipated years before and forbids them to be agricultural landholders. So we need to be realistic about the power of emancipation and what it means. There really is a monodirectional movement amongst Jews with the arrival of the Jewish Enlightenment, which follows the general European Enlightenment. It begins in Central Europe and then kind of migrates this Jewish Enlightenment to Eastern Europe. And one of the big tenets of Jewish Enlightenment, no matter where it was, is to rebirth a much more productive Jew. They could do that by a number of uh, methods, by secular education, you know, learning what their neighbors learn about in schools and certainly at universities. But another way that Jews could restore their vitality was through productive labor. And that could be achieved either through vocational training, and then one would get engaged in some kind of industry, or through agriculture, a return to the land. And this ideology is core to what would become the Zionist movement a little later on. This idea of rebirth, rebirth on the land, which could then not just create stronger Jewish bodies, it would also create a new psychology amongst Jews who would no longer be afraid of their non-Jewish neighbors. They would be able to defend themselves and they would be more respected in their home communities, wherever they live. The Zionist movement seizes upon this idea of agricultural productivization as also a vehicle and a flywheel for the resettlement, the reconquest of Palestine at that time, from the late 1870s into the 1880s. Jonathan mentions ideological movements that influenced Jewish self-perception and self-identification in Europe. Notions of productivity, of a renewed Jewish people, of Zionist aspirations for Jewish invigoration, intersected with agriculture and Jewish relationships to land. So how were these ideas even circulating? What kinds of cultural productions came into being that exposed people to these ideologies? And with Jews living around the world, how do these cultural productions differ from place to place? The farmers themselves, of course, were way too busy to create uh, cultural products about what it was that they were doing. The cultural production, such as it was, was almost entirely generated by Jewish cultural elites, I think we can call them, writing or painting those people who were actually on the land. And as a result, it can often be kind of idyllic. And because, of course, being a farmer is hard work. So the images that we do get are stunning, but they're stunning because they were almost always produced by, by professional artists. There were some marvelous paintings done of uh, the Jewish farming colonies, for example, in Canada, in Winnipeg, Saskatchewan, 
by an artist named William Kurlek, a Canadian Jewish artist. I only discovered them recently almost by accident. They're fantastic. And there are wonderful paintings, series of paintings done by Russian Jewish artists of colonies in Soviet Ukraine and Soviet Crimea in between the world wars. Some of them by more obscure artists like Mayor Axelrod, but some of them done by people who lately have become really hot in the international art market. The most prominent among them is Isishar Rybak, who was considered at the time a more talented contemporary of Marc Chagall. It's wonderful stuff, but uh, again, it's almost unknown, yet beautiful in South America, meaning Argentina and Brazil mostly, this iconic image created first through a book and then a very popular movie about the Jewish gaucho, the Jewish gaucho, the Jewish cowboy. There is no Jew from Argentina, uh, mostly, but, but also from Brazil as well, over the age of 50, who doesn't know this image and, and treasures it. Again, created both in literature and on a movie set. It's really central to Argentinian cultural, Jewish cultural identity. That history of Jewish farming, especially of the Jewish gaucho, even there weren't very many. There were only about 500 actual Jewish gauchos, but everybody in Argentina over the age of 50 is convinced that their great-grandfather was a gaucho. It doesn't really work mathematically, but again, it's part of cultural identity. This idea of agriculture, of farming, as the flywheel of Zionist settlement meant that it was also going to be the image, the image of that process, certainly in the early decades. So going roughly from the 1880s, I would say also up until or even beyond the Second World War into the 1950s and the 1960s. I mean, the iconic imagery of the time, both inside and outside, of Israel for the Israeli was this silly looking farmer guy, a caricature. And it really was just a caricature. His name was Shmulek. He even had a name with this silly hat that he had on working in the field somewhere. And this was the image to inspire Jews throughout the world to, if not they themselves, come and settle in the land of Israel or in the state of Israel, but at least to support it. And alongside that, there is, of course, literature, very idyllic literature about the land of Israel and the farming and developing of it, and a vast poetry. A lot of it is very geographically based. The development of the Jezreel Valley, the Jordan Valley, the Galilee region, you know, for someone reading this who hasn't actually seen it or smelled it, let's say, it, it would be a little hard to really get a warm and fuzzy feeling uh, about this poetry. But for generations here in Israel, these were kind of the greatest hits of Hebrew language poetry. Jonathan mentions the role of agriculture in the Zionist movement. For Jewish youth around the world who were living outside of Palestine, and eventually the state of Israel, what were some ways that they encountered agricultural life as understood through a Zionist outlook? Every Zionist youth movement in the Jewish world, and there were many, they all sought to recruit young Jews, whether it was from Poland before the war, Romania, Soviet Union, certainly, or from North America or Argentina. They realized that it would be unwise to sort of ship these kids from Philadelphia, New York, Warsaw, directly to these 
farms in the middle of the desert or the middle of a swamp up in the Galilee. And so what they wound up doing is creating training farms where essentially high school kids, American, Canadian, Argentinian, Polish, whatever, Jewish high school kids and early sort of age-wise, early college kids would go over the summer, over their vacations, and work a farm there and try to learn the essentials of what it was going to be like to live in a cooperativist environment once they landed on the kibbutz that they were headed for in Israel-Palestine. They were all eradicated, of course, during the Holocaust in Eastern Europe. But they existed in the States, mostly, by the way, in New Jersey and in upstate New York, into and through the 1950s. The appeal of Aliyah, of young Americans who's going to live, not to visit, but to live permanently in Israel or on a kibbutz even more so, receded. And so these training farms fizzled out. Iconic in the Zionist ideology are the kibbutzim. But what exactly is a kibbutz? Was it the only way that Zionism imagined Jewish agricultural life? Kibbutz is a kind of hyper-modern agricultural farm with a community that lives together on this advanced technological farm. Also, it's part of a relatively new ideology. Uh, Kibbutz was a manifestation, not the only one, but a manifestation of the modern Zionist movement, which really only began about 150 years ago. The Kibbutz movement created itself to be a kind of operative arm for land settlement for what was called at the time, way before the state of Israel was created, conquering the land, taking possession of the land. The kibbutz movement arises in the late 1910s, early 1920s. The Moshav movement begins to develop also from the same sources, from Eastern Europe, amongst Zionists who want to come to the land of Israel, but are, are less interested in the fully cooperative aspect of the kibbutz movements at that time. These Moshavim, they are not quite as collectivized as the kibbutzim are. But it would be hard in their first years to really see huge differences between a Moshav and a kibbutz. They were quite similar, although the Moshavim, by and large, were not nearly as secularized. A lot of what scared off potential Zionists to come and join kibbutzim is that in those first generations, uh, the first 20-ish years of the kibbutzim, they were all, I would say, radically secular. And so if you wanted to do the same kind of work, you weren't so into this you know, collectivist ideology, sharing underwear, for example, and you wanted to maintain a more religious lifestyle, your alternative was, was a moshav. The kibbutz movement, an agriculture in Palestine and later the state of Israel, can loom large in modern stories of Jewish agriculture. But should this be the case? Zionism may have called for the negation of the diaspora, but Jewish life continues to exist around the world. What modern agricultural movements are found in the diaspora, which may have no relationship to Zionism whatsoever? You have to look to the diaspora because, in fact, organized Jewish farming, a major return to the land, in the modern era does not begin in Palestine. It begins in the most unlikely of places, I think, given our collective memory, and that's in the Russian Empire. In the year 1804, the Tsar Alexander I opens up what was then called New Russia, roughly southern Ukraine and Crimea today, to Jewish agricultural settlement, colonization. And he offers up vast tracts of land there for Jews, Russian Jews, to migrate there 
from what was going to become the Pale of Settlement that we all kind of know through stories of, of, of the shuttle and so on, and to migrate and become Jewish farmers down there in southern Ukraine. Over the next hundred years, about a hundred thousand of them, more or less, make that choice, or not all stay, and create about two dozen Jewish farming colonies that are, are able to really sustain themselves. And in parallel to all this, Jewish immigrant farmers, starting at the turn of the 20th century, begin to settle what would become eventually about 150,000 Jewish immigrants, mostly from Eastern Europe, into farms, Jewish farms, Jewish colonies, mostly on the East Coast in the United States and in Saskatchewan in Canada from the turn of the 20th century into the 1950s. So the Jewish farming experience, had you asked anyone in the diaspora, and up to the Second World War, where things really did change for all sorts of reasons, the Jewish farming experience was very widespread. No matter where you looked in the diaspora, by the time of the Second World War, something like eight or 9% of all Jews in every diaspora community were active farmers. I was completely unaware of the history of Jewish agriculture in North America. In popular imagination, Jewish immigrants in the U.S. arrived at Ellis Island, moved into tenements in New York, had pushcarts, and worked in the garment district. It's a story of leaving the shtetl in favor of bustling streets. But clearly this doesn't capture a full story. So why is agriculture not part of the broader collective memory? What happened to Jewish farming in America's popular imagination. Why is there so little memory of it? I think it has a lot to do with what is more or less the Jewish communal narrative of success, of upward mobility. You know, we have sort of convinced ourselves that we are an intellectual and professional elite. You know, the Jewish boys and girls are born to join into that elite. And the elite certainly has nothing to do with the farm. Now, several things happened in the States that were unlike other places that explain why almost overnight, the number goes from around 150,000 active Jewish farmers in the United States down to a handful. And that happens from the end of the Second World War into the mid 1950s. You know, it's not because of any government policy and it's certainly not because of repression. Uh, I would say there are two major reasons, and, and one was a good reason. It was the GI Bill. At the end of the Second World War, anyone who had served honorably in the Army in the United States, men and women, were given the opportunity to go and, and have tuition fully paid at a public university. And the sons and the daughters of these colonies took advantage of it. Most of them had served in the Army, and they get educations. And regardless of what those educations were, they then decide that they don't want to go back to working on the farm. They might choose to go back to live on a farm or to be an agronomist. A lot of them actually did turn out to be agronomists, trained at places like Cornell or Rutgers. But they didn't want to go back to, you know, quite literally sweeping up chicken manure. But that coincides with the corporatization of farming in the United States, which begins during the Second World War, which essentially throughout the country kills the family farm. And those two developments are fatal uh, for Jewish and a lot of other family farm-based agriculture in the United States. It really only starts to revive Jewish agriculture in the United States in the last 15 to 20 years 
with the creation of what I think we can call sort of loosely community farms uh, uh, amongst Jews. And there are a number of them, and, and they're all absolutely fascinating. None of them are sort of residential communities, but they are small farms that are located in proximity to Jewish communities, Jewish urban communities by and large, or suburban communities, where mostly young Jews gather, young families gather, to both farm the land, and it's always, or almost always organic farming, of course, because that's what people are into these days, and rightfully so. But also what I'm observing is these small communal farms are also a point for culturally identified Jews. Jews, young Jews who want to be Jews, but haven't found in the conventional Jewish organizations, whether that's synagogues or federations or maybe even Chavuot, haven't found a place that feels right to them. And these farms provide it. And you can make a farm into anything that you want. So if you'd like to make its main object, the alternative celebration of Jewish holidays, or if you'd like to use the farm as a kind of source for alternative identity, gender-based or other. It's a fascinating development that over time, uh, we'll see where it goes. I began this journey to learn more about Jewish farming because of the Rutgers exhibit, which focused on Jewish agriculture in the Garden State in New Jersey. But when I think about America's breadbasket, when I think about wheat and corn, soy and cattle, I'm not left with the impression that this is happening outside of Newark or Hoboken. This is all in spite of the fact that my wife spent much of her childhood in New Jersey and raves about just how delicious and sweet New Jersey corn is. So why did Jewish farmers take root on the East Coast, in places like New Jersey, New York, and Connecticut, when so much of America's farming history seems to be happening elsewhere, happening in the heartland? The very first significant chapter in organized Jewish farming in the United States did target middle America. It was taking advantage, amongst other things, of the Homesteading Act. It launches in the 1880s, exactly at the same time, by the way, that the first Zionist pioneers land in Ottoman Palestine. They have formed a, a, a different movement, but with the same ideology of creating a new Jewish reality based on collectivist, agricultural, communal life. And they set up these communes in North America, in Kansas, Nebraska, Michigan, Louisiana, Colorado, and they all fail within a few years. They fail for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, these newfound communards know absolutely nothing about farming. While the neighbors try to help them, it's simply not enough for them to succeed. And so from the second generation, we'll say the late 1800s and onwards, the Jewish organizations that have formed to support Jewish farming and make some important strategic decisions. And among them are that, first of all, they have to provide training, which they do. But also that Jewish farms have to be clustered together into colonies near large Jewish urban communities. So that corridor, more or less, between southern New Jersey and Connecticut is chosen because 
There are markets available to market your goods. There are Jewish networks available, meaning that if you need Jewish services or need to find a bride for your son, these are accessible in places like Philadelphia, Hartford, Poughkeepsie. And so the Jewish Agricultural Society consciously creates Jewish colonies clustered together along rail lines near possible markets and also places, for example, to buy kosher meat, because not all of these farms grew their own meat products. Part of the reason why the history of Jewish farming was so unknown to me is because I've never known a Jewish farmer. Jonathan has shown how Jewish connections to agriculture are biblical in origin, span millennia, and cross continents. So what happened to Jewish farming in the United States? Where did it go? Since the Second World War, surely, the agricultural profession amongst most Jews is less idealized than it had been before. The kind of sparkling effect in the eyes of Jews and perhaps more so Jewish mothers wore off uh, in the 1940s. And so no Jewish mother would want to admit that their her son or daughter was a farmer. They would prefer their son or daughter, of course, to be engineers, lawyers, doctors, and so on, or uh, college professors for that matter. Jewish farming is not a static reality. It's affected by politics, ideology, technology, and cultural upheavals. Jonathan is not only a scholar, but he spent much of his adult life living on a kibbutz in Israel. So what has he witnessed as Jewish agriculture's changed over time? What has he himself participated in as the kibbutz movement has changed? My biography really shows that transition. When I first arrived on a kibbutz as a young man in the early 1980s, the kibbutzim were pretty adamant that everyone on the kibbutz, its members, had to work on the kibbutz itself. And so it would have been unimaginable at that time, 80s, even into the 90s, for someone like me, I mean, not that I had any intention at that time of going into academia, but it would have been unimaginable. The kibbutz assembly simply would not have approved it. But things began to change through the 80s into the 90s, up to and including a wave of privatizations of the kibbutzim, meaning that the kibbutz, in great part, scaled down and even eliminated its cooperative functions and became more of a community in which there are some cooperative aspects and some social welfare support aspects, and we celebrate holidays together, surely, and one would hope remain friends, but every household kind of fends for itself financially. Now, my particular kibbutz was a very latecomer. We only made that transition a couple of years ago into a more privatized economy, whereas I've been working at the university now for nearly 20. So around that same time, from the late 80s into the 90s, there's a growing recognition in the kibbutzim that in order to keep members happy and to keep them on the kibbutz, I mean, honestly, many, many people left the kibbutzim over the decades because they wanted to work in something else and the kibbutzim refused. And so they left. Over time, the leash was in a way released so that it did become feasible for someone like me to work outside of the kibbutz under condition, of course, that my income would go directly into the kibbutz collective. So no matter what my income was, 
it would be poured into the, the, the communal pot just as if I was still fixing tractors and agricultural machinery. Today, I would say 30% of the adult members and residents of the kibbutz work totally outside of the kibbutz. But in a way, in the kibbutz movement today, anything goes. We've seen that Jewish farming has a rich history. It has a dynamic present. Let's hear from Jonathan one last time and focus on what this history tells us about Jewish peoplehood and why it deserves our attention. It seems to me that Jewish farming is perhaps one of the most important connective tissues among Jews over the generations and over vast spaces and times. It's there, the history is there for the taking, but there has to be a willingness to go outside the box of what it means to be a Jew, a successful Jew in American life. Listening to Jonathan, I now have a much more profound sense of the role of agriculture in Jewish life. While I don't operate a farm, while I'm not a kibbutznik, I do garden, and I'm an avid lover of potted plants. So I'll continue to meditate on biblical shepherds, Jewish gauchos, and the garden state growers as I water my grapevines and admire my fig tree. A special thanks to Jonathan Dechelchen. It was a real treat talking to you. If you're interested in learning more about his work, Jonathan is the author of Farming the Red Land, Jewish Agricultural Colonization and Local Soviet Power, 1923 to 1941. He's also the co-founder of the Kikurim Youth Village for the Arts in Eshkol, which provides artistic training for Israeli high school students. Thanks, as always, to Nico River for music supervision, as well as mixing and mastering joint conversation. To learn more about Nico's work as a composer, visit nicorivers.com. And to learn more about his work in film and audio production, visit auraformaudio.com. That's A-U-R-A-F-O-R-M audio.com. Alec Hudson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song. Thanks to Alec for his talents and creativity. To learn more about Alec's designs, visit warbirdcreative.com. And for his music, visit alechudson.com. Our website design is by Jacob Lazaro. Our episodes feature music by the Boston-based Sephardic band, Voice of the Turtle. The group is no longer active, but their music is on Spotify, and their website remains a trove of Sephardic sounds. Listen and learn more at voiceoftheturtle.com. We also feature the music of Ezekiel's Wheels. Thanks to the band and Abigail Reisman for making that happen. Learn more about Ezekiel's Wheels at ewklesmer.com. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for making high-quality music available for creatives everywhere. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and curiosity. Stay engaged with Joy in Conversation by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice and by visiting our website, joyinconversationpodcast.com. And remember, Joy in Conversation is still independent, but it's now the audio experience for Project Mosaics, an education nonprofit dedicated to promoting humanities education that elevates and centers Jewish histories, cultures, arts, and identities through the creation of digital multimedia content in order to illuminate the plurality of Jewish voices and experiences from around the world in classrooms right here at home. Consider donating to Project Mosaics, which you can do by visiting projectmosaics.org. 
Your donations help us create content for teachers and students that is multicultural and culturally affirming. Support Project Mosaics and help us connect the pieces of Jewish history. Okay, Bashufaku. We'll see you next time.